You're listening to The Good GP, the podcast for busy GPs. Hello and welcome to The Good GP. My name's Sean Stevens, and before we start, The Good GP would like to acknowledge the traditional owners of the lands upon which this podcast is recorded. This episode is brought to you from the lands of the Woodchuck and Wurundjeri people. We pay our respects to the elders past, present and emerging. Leaping straight into it, my guest today is Dr Tillman Ruff, AO. Tillman is an infectious diseases and public health physician and honorary principal fellow in the School of Population and Global Health at the University of Melbourne. Dr Ruff was a co-president of the International Physicians for the Prevention of Nuclear War, or IPPNW, from 2012 to 2023 and continues as a board member of that organisation. IPPNW won the Nobel Prize in 1985. He's been active in the Medical Association for Prevention of War, or MAPW, since 1982 and past national president of that organisation. He was a co-founder and founding international and Australian chair of the International Campaign to Abolish Nuclear Weapons, or ICANN, which was awarded the Nobel Peace Prize in 2017, the first Australian-born entity to do so. Welcome, Tillman. Thanks very much, Sean. So, Tillman, I read your recent article in the MJA, Reducing the Risk of Nuclear War, the Role of Health Professionals, and I must admit it was pretty alarming. The Security Board of the Atomic Scientists has moved the hands of the doomsday clock to 90 seconds before midnight, the highest level since the height of the Cold War. Why is the risk so high? Well, thanks, Sean. This is a, yes, the editorial was designed to, you know, a bit of a wake-up call for the profession and that the nuclear threat hasn't gone away. And in fact, the danger is widely assessed as great as it's ever been and it's no imminent sign of drastically heading downwards. The bulletin of the atomic scientists who are the custodians of the doomsday clock is a very august group. The board of sponsors includes 13 Nobel laureates. It was established by Albert Einstein and Oppenheimer and many of the scientists who were involved in building the first nuclear weapons and then horrified about the prospects of an arms race that they worried would be catastrophic for humanity. And so the bulletin was specifically intended to try and educate the public about the dangers because they believed that only a mobilised and educated public could compel decision makers to control nuclear weapons. They established the Doomsday Clock in 1947 as a convenient way of describing the longer term trends of how we are tracking against the major threats. They were focused on nuclear war since then in the last couple of decades. The clock has also considered other threats, uh, biological threats, technological threats, as well as nuclear ones, and of course, global heating, climate disruption. So it's a fairly comprehensive picture, not sort of the day-to-day, week-to-week cut and thrust of politics, but how are we tracking on an annual assessment against the really big threats that humanity needs to address? So it's a very serious group that meets for many days at a time, considers lots of evidence. It's no lightweight organisation. And There are reasons for moving the clock forward now, further forward this year than it's ever been since 1947, even during the Cold War and the Cuban Missile Crisis. The principal reason was the the Russian invasion of Ukraine and the associated threats, really explicit, repeated nuclear threats in this conflict that brings the world's largest arsenals 
of nuclear weapons into dangerously close proximity. There are other factors that they considered, uh, the failure of disarmament to progress, the unravelling of the hard-won treaties that have constrained nuclear weapons types and numbers in the last decade since the end of the Cold War, disinformation enabled by cyber technologies, and cyber warfare itself, as well as the global failure to address climate with the urgency that it demands. And it's clear now that a climate-stressed world is one that's more prone to armed conflict. Wars and the health impacts of those are escalating significantly over the last decade, and mortality in wars has risen dramatically in 2022, really, I think, reflecting the fact that climate impacts are really starting to bite. So there are multiple trends, but the Russian invasion was really the most significant one that triggered this move. Mm. No, look, that's, um, it is very alarming. And I guess we sort of think as doctors that our responsibility is just to our patient. But if you look at the Hippocratic Oath and if you look at what our profession stands for, our responsibility extends to the health of populations. And there's no greater threat than nuclear war and climate change. And so it is very, very important. Of course, prevention and the factors that lead to ill health are very much in health territory. When I was um, sort of got involved in this issue in the early 80s, the thing that really struck me as such a sort of disconnect really was the first World Health Organization reports, really detailed authoritative reports in the 1980s that considered the effects of nuclear war on health and health services. And the World Health Assembly, when it considered those unequivocally, unanimously said this is the greatest immediate threat to human health and welfare constituted by nuclear weapons. Well, you know, this is the lead technical agency on health in the world uh, saying this, and the body that represents every single health ministry on the planet unanimously agreeing. Where's the health professional attention to this? Mm. You know, commensurate with the level of that danger. And I've seen over the decades just how significant evidence is and evidence-based advocacy by health professionals with all of the credibility and authority and access that we have when we speak to the things that we know about that are that we're the custodians of so yes it's absolutely crucial and health professionals have made a huge difference in helping to prevent nuclear war and achieve the reductions in nuclear arms that have occurred yeah Look, we do hold that esteemed place in society and it is very important that we do use that. Are there any other things that you think GPs in particular could be doing to reduce the risks of nuclear war? Look, I think there's some things that we can do as citizens that anybody can do and should do. There's things that we can do as health professionals and then there's profession and sort of area-specific things. I think all of us should be informed on these issues, should talk about these issues in the organisations that we're part of, include these issues in our teaching if we're teaching GP trainees or or having medical students in the practice. And in our medical organisations, the colleges, the Public Health Association, the Australian Medical Association, health organisations by and large get this. And I have to say that in my work through the International Physicians for the Prevention of Nuclear War, we've had a very productive and very synergistic and fruitful and continuing partnership with the peak international health federation bodies, the World Medical Association, the World Federation of Public Health Associations, the International Council of Nurses, 
the International Federation of Medical Students Association, as well as the, the Red Cross and Red Crescent Movement, the world's largest humanitarian organisation, really speaking together with one voice, and that makes our influence enormously greater. Join and support organisations like MAPW and, and ICANN. Something very simple we can all do is nuclear weapons production and the companies that make them is a huge business. You know, it attracts well over $100 billion a year just in maintaining, modernising, developing new nuclear weapons. Many Australian banks and super funds invest in those companies and a growing number of them don't. Several, six at least super funds in Australia are at least one bank and some more important and large super funds about to be announced. New policies of divestment from companies that profit from building the most destructive weapons of mass destruction that we have that are now illegal under international law. So everybody can talk to their bank or super fund and potentially move their funds elsewhere if you don't like the policies of the bank and financial institutions. And I think engaging with governments, um, you know, every level of government, whether it's local, state or federal, their primary responsibility is to protect the health and well-being of their citizens. There's things you can do at every level. So locally, at local government level, ICANN has a cities appeal. It's a global initiative that invites and encourages cities to state their support for the treaty that prohibits nuclear weapons and urges their national government to join it. Many of those cities engage in educational events for their citizens and also divest their own funds from nuclear weapons producers. And the thing that moves local councils is residents speaking up. They're not influenced so much by anyone else, but your local council will listen to you. At a federal level, you know, we all have access to our parliamentarians. They represent us. They need to hear from us to support Australia joining the Treaty on the Prohibition of Nuclear Weapons as Labor National Policy Platform commits. And as Australia has joined every other treaty that prohibits an indiscriminate and inhumane and illegal weapon, chemical weapons, biological weapons, cluster munitions, landmines, exploding ammunition, blinding lasers, all of those things Australia has joined by governments, both Labor and coalition. You know, this should be humanitarian and health issues that are above party politics. Mm. We have 111 currently members of the current federal parliament, that's about half of them, who have signed uh, ICANN's parliamentary pledge that commits them publicly to support Australia joining the treaty. Our parliamentarians need to hear from us. Um, and the planned acquisition of nuclear-powered submarines by Australia really increases the urgency of Australia joining the Prohibition Treaty because it will be by far the most enduring and effective way that the government can make real its promise that nuclear-powered submarines are not the thin end of the wedge for stationing or acquisition of nuclear weapons by Australia. Mm, thank you. So in your article, you also mentioned about three asks of nuclear-armed states and their allies to reduce the near-term risk of nuclear war. You've mentioned signing the treaty to ban nuclear weapons. Can you tell me about the other two? Yes, the asks that we uh, included in that article were, were really designed to be things that can help immediately tomorrow to reduce the danger of nuclear war to durably and reliably prevent nuclear weapons being used if that threshold is crossed, the profound 
likelihood and terrible danger that that would escalate uncontrollably very rapidly. That requires essentially to eliminate the weapons. So to durably prevent nuclear war, we need to end nuclear weapons before they end us. But in the meantime, there are steps that can be taken to reduce the likelihood of their use while they're being eliminated. The ones that we specifically cited in that article include policies of no first use. So nuclear armed states saying we will not be the first to use nuclear weapons. That would dramatically reduce the risks of nuclear war by inadvertence or accident or cyber attack. The combination of technical and human errors that on at least six previous occasions have caused Russia or the United States to actually initiate launch procedures for nuclear weapons in the mistaken belief that they were under attack. So for every state with nuclear weapons to say, we will not be the first to use nuclear weapons, if those pledges are held, then we shouldn't have a nuclear war. So that's the first one. The second one is take nuclear weapons off high alert. Um, There are about 2,000 nuclear weapons in the world that are on so-called hair trigger status. That means that they are ready to be launched within minutes, four to eight minutes of a decision to do so. That makes them profoundly vulnerable again to accidental or inadvertent launch. Um, It also makes them very vulnerable to the temptation to sort of use them before you lose them if you think you might be under attack. So taking weapons off high alert status would also dramatically reduce the risks of nuclear war commencing. And for all of the states involved in current conflicts, and this was particularly, I guess, with the Russian invasion of Ukraine in mind, but it applies to others as well, where states are involved in armed conflict, India and China skirmishes across their border, India and Pakistan fighting almost daily across the disputed border in Kashmir, to pledge not to use nuclear weapons in those conflicts. I guess a specific elaboration of a no first use pledge. Those are the specific measures that the article advocates. There are, of course, others ending the sole authority of one person, as happens in many countries, to be able to launch nuclear weapons is a profoundly vulnerable situation to a disordered or dysfunctional or ill personality in charge of nuclear weapons. Ending the modernization, the development of new nuclear weapons would be a very valuable step. Um, Those weapons increase, considered more usable, increase the dangers of use of nuclear weapons. They're faster, stealthier, more accurate. Controlling the plutonium and highly enriched uranium from which nuclear weapons are built would be also an important step. And ending the stationing of nuclear weapons in other states, as Russia has claimed to have recently deployed nuclear weapons in Belarus, and the US deploys nuclear weapons in five NATO members in Europe. Those profoundly add to the risks. At the moment, the Treaty on the Prohibition of Nuclear Weapons is really the only treaty-based, it's the only internationally agreed framework for how we actually eliminate the weapons. So the sort of overall call in the article, states need to get serious about negotiating disarmament and the Treaty on the Prohibition of Nuclear Weapons is really the most fertile pathway for that. Um, mm-hmm. It establishes you know, time-bound processes verified by an independent international authority to eliminate not just nuclear weapons, but the facilities and programs that produce them. It's currently the only such blueprint for disarmament. So it really is the most hopeful light in an otherwise pretty dark 
landscape. Um, it currently has 92 states that have joined it, that have signed it. Um, 68 of those have completed their ratification procedures and are now legally bound by the treaty. But every nation should join this treaty. And our particular responsibility as Australian and health professionals is to ensure that our government does that without too much further delay. Mm. Excellent. Look, all really, really important steps. And you sort of think a lot of this is beyond you, but if every doctor in Australia stood up and did something about this, then you can bet that the government would have to sign the treaty and would be banging on our big American friend's door asking them to do the same. Look, thank you, Tillman, and thank you for all the work that you've done over the many years you've been involved in this very important area. We were talking earlier, I've been a member of MAPW myself for about 32 years since I was a medical student, and I think it's an amazing organisation. I'd really encourage anybody interested in this area to join and get involved. So thank you again, Tillman, and um, best of luck. Thanks very much, Sean, all the best. Thanks for listening to The Good GP Podcast a proud member of the Talking Health Tech podcast network. Make sure you're subscribed on your favourite podcast player so you don't miss an episode. If you have any questions or would like to contact The Good GP, send an email to thegoodgp at gmail.com. The content of this podcast represents the opinions of The Good GP, hosts and guests of the show. The content is aimed at general practitioners working in the Australian context and is not intended to represent medical advice. Any listeners experiencing symptoms or who have concerns about their health should seek advice from a registered health professional. We make every effort to ensure that the information shared is accurate and up to date at the time of recording, but welcome any feedback or corrections. The content of this podcast is general in nature and does not refer to specific patient management. We recommend all health professionals review local and up-to-date guidelines prior to any clinical decisions. 